Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the time we can spend this Sabbath, today and tomorrow, in discussing something so practical and so necessary. Lord, I pray that we might have the wherewithal to grasp the concepts, to put into practice the things that we are talking about, and that we might be people of the word once more. May your spirit come to be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin in looking at the verse we talked about earlier, 2 Timothy 2.15, or the verse we had in scripture reading. This really forms the foundation of what we're discussing this whole weekend. And by the way, this is not so much a revival-type style weekend as it is a seminar. And the way that I think about it is a revival weekend, you come to be energized, recharged, inspired. But a seminar is a class. I know it's the end of the school year. I really shouldn't use those kinds of words. But what I'm trying to get you in the gear of is that you're going to have to think. Is that okay to think at church? Is it okay that I'm going to expect you to actually, you know, reason and to remember and to, you know, use your brain a little bit? Um, Because there's going to be a lot of information and the burden of mine this weekend is that you'll actually learn something, that it's going to be something clear, something that you perhaps have not learned before. So let's get back to the Bible here. 2 Timothy chapter 2.15. It says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. What are the next two words? In the King James Version, at least, it says, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, if the Apostle Paul says that there is a right way to divide the, tr- the truth. What do you suppose there also is a wrong way? And so this is really the foundation of why we're discussing this topic, is that there is a right and a wrong way, whoops, let me go back here, to study your Bible. And so I don't claim to be an expert. I don't claim to have an exhaustive study for you, but I'm going to try to share some practical ways that we can ensure that we're dividing the word rightly and not haphazardly and not wrongly, okay? So how are we going to do this? So we have four parts to the seminar. Tonight, we're right here. So tonight, we're going to be discussing foundational principles, and we're going to explain why it's important to come to the word with the proper... uh, assumptions uh, a little later tonight. And then tomorrow morning during Sabbath school time, we're going to talk about practical considerations. I've distilled to the bare essentials. You're just going to have to remember two sets of three things. We remember things in threes. So we're not going to try to remember six things. We're going to remember two sets of three things. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And if you remember these three things in two sets... (laughs) You, I think, based on, you know, I hope, my goal is that once you know those three things, those six things, but two sets of three things, you will know all you need to study the Bible for yourself. So that's what we're going to discuss tomorrow morning. And then during the sermon time, since I know many of the people joining us in the 11 o'clock hour won't be here for tonight and tomorrow morning, we're going to be doing something sort of a double two for the price of one. You like that? 
Buy one, get one free? Okay, so demonstration, what that's going to be, I'm actually going to be preaching a sermon that's actually a Bible study. And the Bible study is going to be not necessarily directly related to what we're discussing, but it's a demonstration of the principles that we're using the study. Does that make sense? So it's going to be a message that anyone can listen to and get a blessing and not have to listen to part one and part two. But for those of you who are in the know, you're going to have to use two halves, both halves of your brain. One is going to be listening to the message. The other is processing, okay, how did he apply the principles that we talked about tonight and Sabbath school time? Does that make sense? All right. I told you you're going to have to think. All right. And then tomorrow afternoon, we are going to actually deconstruct the Sabbath morning sermon. And we're going to review how it was put together. And then we're going to say, okay, what else can we use this, these principles you know, to apply in other, other passages of the Bible? So trying to be practical, and that's the breakdown of what we're going to do this weekend. All right? Everyone with me so far? Okay, that's just the introduction. So tonight... We're going to be discussing foundational principles, okay? We're going to be looking at 10 points, 10 principles that would be helpful for us to shape our thinking as we come to the practice of studying the Bible. And actually, let's just get right into it, because the first point really explains why it's important for us to even go through 10 foundational principles to begin with. The first principle we're discussing tonight is called the presupposition principle. Presupposition, what a big word. You shouldn't start with a big word, right? You lose your audience. But there's an important reason why we use this word. Because presupposition is put together by a root word. If I take this middle word here, does it look sort of like another word Suppose, right? What do you suppose the word suppose means? I sort of let the cat out of the bag, right? When you suppose something, you're thinking, how do you think about something, right? So what is a pre, how do you presuppose? Is what you think about what you're going to think about. (laughs) Does that make sense? If I can put it in other words, this is our assumptions. We're talking about our assumptions. When we're thinking about studying the Bible, all of us come to the Bible with a certain set of pre-built-in assumptions in our minds. And these come about through our, our life experience, through our education, through our culture, through the media, through whatever has occurred previously to our brain, in our brain, it actually forms a picture through which, it's a lens, it's a filter through which we process new information. Now, this actually is a very important principle to all things in life, even in relationships, in communication, but when you're studying the Bible, we have to recognize, we need to come to the Word realizing we are not a blank slate. We come with baggage. We come with presuppositions, with assumptions, so how, do, how are we supposed to manage these presuppositions? Well, let's see what the Spirit of Prophecy has to say. Gospel Workers, page 125, paragraph 1. It says, how shall we search the scriptures in order to understand what they teach? That sort of sounds like what we're discussing this weekend, right? So we're on the same topic. She continues, 
we should come to the investigation of God's word with a contrite heart, a teachable and prayerful spirit. We are not to think as did the Jews that our own ideas and opinions are infallible, nor with the papists that certain individuals are the sole guardians of truth and knowledge, that men have no right to search the scriptures for themselves, but must accept the explanations given by the fathers of the church. Here's the key point. We should not study the Bible for the purpose of sustaining our preconceived opinions, but with a single object of learning what God has said. Preconceived opinions is just another way of saying presupposition or assumptions. So the Spirit of Prophecy tells us, when you come to the Word, you need to know, yes, I do have preconceived ideas, but we need to not allow those preconceived ideas to get in the single object that we are trying to accomplish. And that is to find out what is God trying to tell me. Now, how can I concoct some way of making God say something that I want him to say? Right? The book Education says this, page 189, paragraph 1, the student of the Bible should be taught to approach it in the spirit of a learner. We are to search its pages, not for proof to sustain our opinions, but in order to know what God says. So, this is a very important point. So I want to dwell on this a little bit. Because there are certain viewpoints, there are certain viewpoints about the scriptures themselves that how you approach it almost predetermines what conclusions you're going to reach. So, for example, for example, If we have the preconceived idea or opinion or assumption that this world operates purely by natural causes, no such things as miracles, there is no such thing as a supernatural, and you're already convinced in your mind, you've made up your mind, you dug in your heels that that is truth. When you come to the Bible, and the first chapter of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, how would you relate to those words if your preconceived idea is that there is no such thing as a supernatural? Well, I'll tell you what happens, because this is a very real phenomenon, even within Christianity, is that people come to the Bible and say, well, that certainly must not be literal. God certainly didn't create all things by speaking them into existence, because that just can't be. That just can't be true. Because the world operates by natural causes. So certainly God must have created through natural means. Does that make sense how your presuppositions affect how you read the word? You know, so if you want to say that that's the left, the left of the aisle, the people who have very little faith in the Bible, it's the presupposition that, you know, there is no God, perhaps. There's no supernatural. All things work by natural causes. Those presuppositions, we read them into the word, and all of a sudden, all the miracles are just illustrations. They're myths. The Bible is just, you know, pick and choose. On the other hand, though, I think that there are also problems when we try too hard to find certain things in the Bible. So, for example, when we have a presupposition that some major event in current events, major happening, 
is so significant, and we assume the Bible certainly must talk about this. And then we go into the Bible and we look for substantiation to prove our point. That's just as dangerous. Let me give you a concrete example. If you have your Bibles, look with me in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30. This is an example, illustration of how well-meaning, spiritually-minded, God-fearing Christians, even Adventists, can fall into a trap. We can trip ourselves up with our own presuppositions without knowing it. So Isaiah chapter 30, verse 25. Notice what it says. And there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. So what is this verse talking about? Anyone want to venture a guess? Have you read, uh, if you've read Isaiah chapter 30, it's actually within the context. I know Isaiah 30 is not a commonly studied chapter, but let me just give you the summary. God is pronouncing judgment upon Israel for calling on Egypt to aid them to fight the Assyrians. The Assyrians are coming, and Israel said, oh no, I need help. And they call the Egyptians. And you remember who the Egyptians were, former slave masters of the Israelites, idolaters and whatnot. And so God, in the first part of the chapter, condemns them. He says, what are you doing? You're going to be destroyed because you're not trusting in the living God. You're trusting to Egypt. However, he flips the script and he says, nevertheless, God, I'm going to have mercy upon you. And that's what, and then he gives all the blessings, you know, the the oxen and the deer shall eat the ground, you know, all this stuff. All the good stuff is going to happen to you. And here, that's why in verse 25, he's talking about there will be on every high mountain and every high hill rivers and streams in that day of the great slaughter. The days when the towers fall, it's actually talking about if you trust in the Lord, I will be your victor and you will go and you will tear down the walls and the towers of the Assyrians rather than the other way around. Okay, that was just a real quick summary of what what happens in Isaiah chapter 30. So how does the presupposition principle apply here? Well, if this is the illustration, this is a story of what happened. Do you remember what happened on September 11, 2001? You know where I'm going with this, right? After that event, I was at church one day, and there was a fellow church member. She came up to me in a huff. She was like, shell shock. She was just, I can't believe this. I cannot believe what I have just found in the Bible this morning. Do you know that the Bible predicted 9-11? And I said, uh what? And she read me Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 25. And she said, do you see it? I said, see what? She said, the towers fall. And I looked at her and I said, "Uh, have you read the whole chapter? And she said, no, but I don't need to because it's so clear. Do you understand why it's important to understand the importance of how to manage our presuppositions? Because we can go to the Bible to substantiate anything we want if we allow ourselves to think 
that our own opinions can be read into the scriptures. We are not to search its pages to, for proof to sustain our opinions. Was September 11 a very significant event? Yes. But we need to be careful not to allow the news. And since when has the news become the greatest source of truth? Right? We're going to use the news to interpret the Bible now? All right, let's be careful. So this is the presupposition principle. All right, one more thing about this, and then we move on. I know this is just point one. We've got to move quickly here. This is the big issue, is that when we are thinking about presuppositions, the biggest area I think that it applies to us is when it crosses our own human inclinations. If we, are al- if we have already made up our minds that there are certain lifestyle practices certain vices, certain amusements in our lives that we presuppose and we just have already made up our minds, it doesn't matter what anyone says, I am going to do this. When the Bible condemns us, when the Bible says this is sin, are we willing to let go of our preconceived ideas and let the word cut that away? If the Bible says you are going the wrong direction, but we have already made up our minds that we are going the right direction. Who's going to have the final word? This is the foundational reason why this is principle number one. We have to manage our own presupposition. How are we going to deal with things when we are already a way of thinking, but the Bible goes contrary to that? I'll let you muse on that as we go to number two. Thought inspiration principle. Okay, let me just read these quotes and we'll talk about them. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, or trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. This is First Select Messages, page 21, paragraph 1. Next paragraph, it says this. It is not the words of the Bible that were inspired, but the men that were inspired. Now, that is a very interesting thought. Haven't you ever thought, oh, the Bible was inspired by God, so the words must be inspired? Actually, the words were not inspired. The men were inspired. And how does it work? Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with a human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the words of God. So why is this important? It's important to remember that the Bible writers were inspired on the level of their thoughts. So the concepts, the principles, the ideas that they communicate are what God inspired them with. God did not come down and electrocute them, and then grab their hand and just etch the words exactly as he wants them. That's called verbal inspiration. And our friends, the, the Muslim, the Muslim faith, they believe that the Quran was verbally inspired, which meant the words that came to the Prophet Muhammad was exactly what God wanted him to write. So what that means is that only the original language of the Quran is the inspired Quran. So if you read the Quran in English, 
You did not read the Quran. You read an English interpretation of the Quran. I praise the Lord that he did not choose to verbally inspire the scriptures because I personally can't read Greek or Hebrew and I have to read the English Bible. But the English Bible can be trusted because the Bible was not inspired on the level of the individual words, but on the thoughts of the men who wrote them. We're going to expound on this point a little bit later in another point, but I just want to mention this here because we don't want to get too fixated on the individual words. We need to focus on the thoughts. What are the principles? What are the ideas being communicated? So this is, um, this is the thought inspiration principle. We'll continue here. Principle number three, revelation principle. What do I mean by that? Daniel 2.47, Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is a revealer of secrets. Of course, Daniel chapter 2 is right after God gave him a dream and then sent Daniel the prophet to interpret that dream. Matthew 7.7, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Christ's Object Lessons, page 37, paragraph 1, it says, Ever since the fall of man, Christ has been the revealer of truth to the world. By him, the incorruptible seed, the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever and ever, is communicated to men. What's the, what's the name of the last book of the Bible? Revelation. And it's ironic because everyone says that book is impossible to understand. But what does the word revelation mean? To reveal. And all of Scripture was intended by God to reveal himself to man. Think with me about this. What does it say about the character of God if he says, here is the manual for salvation, the Bible, but I am hiding the truth from you so that it is very difficult to find? What does that tell you about the character of God? Is this a loving God? Is this a God whose priority is the salvation of lost man? But how often we approach and we maybe inadvertently describe the Bible in such terms. We say, oh, it's hard to understand. The Bible is, is difficult because you really have to dig hard to find anything. Well, wait a minute. God wrapped up the whole book of the, you know, all 66 books with a book called Revelation. And it's called, the process is called inspiration and revelation. That's actually the official term. What am I saying? I'm saying that God is actually in the business of trying to reveal himself. So the issue is not with God. The issue is with us. For lack of a better word, we're just too stupid to understand. So we got to get the horse and the cart in the right order. God is not in the business of hiding himself, hiding the truth, burying it deep in the ground so that it's difficult for us to understand his word. We are too dull of understanding. We are too fixated on our own preconceived ideas. We're not humble enough to release ourselves of our pride and say, Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. He is called the revealer of truth to the world. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was a pagan king. And after the first exposure to this God of heaven, his first reaction is, your God is a revealer of secrets. 
He's not in the business of hiding stuff. So let me, let me go further a little bit here. And that is, we all have heard the conspiracy theories, right? And there's, a, there's an issue. There's an issue here because often when we are in the study of the Bible, particularly when we get into prophecy, last day events, there's a fine line between studying the Bible and the prophecy as it is clearly stated and crossing over the line into conspiracy theories. Here's a big problem with conspiracy theories based on this principle. Is that if it is necessary for us to understand the secret workings of the secret societies and all of the powers behind the curtain, if we have to know that information in order for us to be saved, what does that tell us about God? He, that means he did not tell us everything we need to know in the Bible. It tells us that all of those poor people out in the boonies where they don't have the internet and all they have are just a few pages of the Bible and they have no way of knowing what's going on in the Vatican, with the Illuminati, with the Masons, and all of those secret societies, because they don't know, they will not be saved at last. What does that tell us about God? You know what the Bible says about God? Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's look there real quick. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse... 13, we've read this before, I know, I know you've heard it, it says, And ye shall seek me, and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. It's a promise of Scripture that if we come to God with a full heart, a wholehearted surrender, He says, you will find me. God is in the business of revealing Himself, not hiding Himself. And when we come to the study of the Scripture, we need to remember that. We are the limiting factor, not God, not the Holy Spirit, not the angels. They are wanting to pour out all heavenly gifts to us, but we are too proud. We're too closed-minded, and we're too dumb. Okay, number four, continuing, the human language principle. This actually ties right into the thought inspiration principle. What does it say? First Selected Messages, page 20, paragraph 2, the Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. I'm, I'm glad, because I can't understand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. So there are a couple practical lessons here. First, is that... Part of the reason sometimes people disagree about the Bible, because you know well that there are plenty of theological debates, and when you look at the verses, oftentimes you look at both sides of the arguments, or there might be more than two sides of the argument, and oftentimes you say, well, I can see how they got that. And you look at the other side, and like, well, I can see how they got that too. You ever had that feeling? Well, the problem is not so much that God is trying to make things confusing. The problem is that human language is imperfect. By definition, humanity is imperfect. And so a human language, an imperfect language, means that it cannot absolutely precisely, down to the nanometer, identify precisely what God is trying to communicate sometimes. 
Let me give you an example. Let's look in the book of Daniel. Okay, Daniel chapter uh, 3. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, and we are looking at verse 16 through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We know this story. Daniel chapter 3, fiery furnace. They're about to be thrown in, and they're talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 17, it says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Okay, so in verse 17 it says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. What are they talking about? If what be so? If it be so, what is he talking about? Okay, before that, before that, what that exact phrase, if it be so, what is the it that he's talking about? If you throw us into the furnace, right? Okay, look at verse 18. But if not, but what not? Notice carefully, this is, this is an illustration of how the human language is imperfect. In verse 17, it talks about two things. Verse 17 says, if it be so, meaning if you throw me into the fiery furnace, God will deliver me. If you throw me into the fiery furnace, God will deliver me. Two things. So in verse 18, but if not, what's he talking about? If you don't throw me into the fiery furnace, or if God doesn't deliver me. Which of the two is he talking about? But he just said, my God will deliver me. And then his next word is, but if he doesn't? Does that make any sense? So here's my point. My point is that I have heard this interpreted both ways. There's someone that comes and says in verse 18, but if not, meaning if you throw me into the fiery furnace, God will deliver me. But if you don't throw me into the fiery furnace, I'm still not going to bow down to your idol. The other reading says, if you throw me into the fiery furnace, my God will deliver me. But even if he doesn't deliver me, I'll still not bow down to your image. Do you, real, do you see what I'm saying here? That, that those two verses can be read both ways. And I cannot per- persuade you one way or the other because the English language or the human language is simply imprecise enough to make that crystal clear. Does that make sense? So you can imagine that there are certain times when there are matters of greater significance that because the language of humanity is limited in its scope, it's finite, that's why there are human disagreements. And that's why, by the way, we ought to be charitable to people who don't see eye to eye with us. Amen? I'm not going to go any further on that point, but uh, I think you know what I'm saying. All right. Let's continue. Point number five, spiritual things principle. 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Very important point. Hebrews 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall speak not of himself, 
But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So all of these three verses are simply illustrating that to fully understand the word of God, you need something more than just human intellect. There is a spiritual component because spiritual things must be spiritually discerned, and that happens only when the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, comes upon us. Continuing, this is Christ's object lessons, page 110, paragraph 1. Christ is the truth. His words are truth, and they have a deeper significance than appears on the surface. All the sayings of Christ have a value beyond their unpretending appearance. Minds that are quickened by the Holy Spirit will discern the value of these sayings. They will discern the precious gems of truth, though they may be buried treasure. So even though, even though the human language is very limited, because of the divine influence of the words, there is a deeper meaning frequently in the words that are communicated. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 6, I won't, we won't go there, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He says, he that ye must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And actually, after that dis- discourse, it says, and many went away and walked no more with him. Because they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? So this illustrates when Jesus was saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, there were people literally that balked and said, how can we do that? That's cannibalism. Ew. And they went away and said, this, this guy is strange. He is messed up. I can't believe he said that. Blah, 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 blah. Right? But we know that that's actually not what he meant. And who are the only ones who understood? The ones who had their minds quickened by the Holy Spirit. Hopefully we fall in that category. Because how often we read something in the scriptures and we say, I don't get it. Perhaps the issue is that our minds have not been quickened by the Holy Spirit. We're reading it simply as a human document, and we say, oh, that doesn't make any sense. I, God can't possibly ask me to do that. I can't possibly give this up because that's going to happen. If I quit my job because I have to work on the Sabbath, how am I going to pay the bills? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The spiritually minded will look at that situation and say, here is an opportunity for God to prove himself. Whereas the carnally minded will say, Forget you, God. You're asking too much of me. Does that make sense? Spiritually discernment. Spiritual discernment. Point number five. Now, point number six is a counterbalance to point number five. And that is sometimes we need to have, there are, you know, ditches on either side of the road, the right or the left. And the previous one, it says there are spiritual meanings that are deeper than just the words that are at the surface. We need to remember that. But there's also another perilous ditch on the other side, and that is we might go off in la-la land and decide to spiritualize everything away. So what's the hoofbeat principle? Let me tell you a little story. I was very ill one time in the hospital. This was 2007-8-ish, end of the year. Some of you have heard the story. I was in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down. You can hear the story on Audioverse. I won't go into it right now. But I was in the ER, And I was paralyzed. I could not move. And the attending physician came in, a neurologist. And I was in a medical center, university medical center. So there were a lot of medical students there, residents and medical students. So this attending physician came in, and with him, a retinue of fresh-faced, bag under their eyes, you know, medical students. 
So they came in and they were standing there, and the doctor said, would you mind if they did some assessment on you, because, you know, this, to see if they can figure things out, and okay, all right, whatever. So they were poking and prodding and flicking me, and they were like, poof, 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 doing all this stuff. And I couldn't move, right? So I'm like, all right, whatever. And then the doctor stood back, and he says, so what do you guys think? What do you think the problem is? And these guys just launched into, like, all these elaborate terms and names of, like, is this? Is it this? Or is it that? Like, maybe the and all these words, like, like, don't even ask me. And at the time, I had a friend with me in the ER who happens to be a neurologist. This was, this was a GYC. His name is Norman McNulty. And he was sitting right there, and he was sort of snickering under his breath because he's like, medical students. <laughs> and so the doctor stood there, and I could see he had an amused look on his face, and he stopped. These were his first words. When you hear hoofbeats, don't start looking for zebras. Do you understand what he meant by that? You see, all of these medical students were going all out, like all these exotic diagnoses. I mean, like crazy stuff that they read about in their textbook. And the doctor was saying, when you hear hoofbeats, don't go looking for what's most exotic. Look for what's most obvious. Because if you live in Tennessee, particularly if you're near my house, if you hear hoofbeats, they ain't going to be zebras. They're probably going to be horses or maybe cows. So what's the point? The point is when you are faced with a question, when you are studying something and there's a dilemma in in the scriptures and you're trying to interpret something, don't look for the most far-out, exotic answer. Oftentimes, the clearest, most simplest answer is the right one. And by the way, that actually applies to everything else in life. So remember that in your final exams. No extra charge for that. So in the book, Great Controversy, page 598, paragraph 3, this is what it says. The truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who, with a pretense of great wisdom, teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. Now this is very interesting because we just read that if we have this Holy Spirit to guide us, we will understand meanings in the text that's not apparent in the language employed. Is Ellen White contradicting herself here? No, she's not. There's actually a boundary. There are things that the Spirit will show us, and there are things that our human imagination will attempt to show us. And there's a safe zone in the middle. This is what she's talking about. She says, These men are false teachers. It was to such a class that Jesus declared, Ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning, unless a symbol or figure is employed. It's pretty clear, right? Christ has given the promise, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John 7, 17. If men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse the minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. Going back to the other illustration, Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If we were to take the most obvious meaning, yeah, it would sound like cannibalism. However, we must take the Bible as it reads, which means keep reading. 
And Jesus, in a few verses later, explains, eat my flesh, drink my blood means eat my words. Study the Bible. He explains himself. Okay? So yes, there is a deeper meaning, but the deeper meaning comes from the scripture itself. We must be careful lest we misinterpret the scriptures. The plain teachings of the word of God are not to be so spiritualized that the reality is lost sight of. Do not overstrain the meaning of sentence in the Bible in order to bring forth something odd, in order to please the fancy. Take the Bible as they read. Avoid idle speculation concerning what will be in the kingdom of heaven. First Selected Messages, page 170, paragraph 2. And this is a danger for all of us who preach. In the effort of getting people's attention, we always feel like, I got to have something amazing, right? I got to like knock this out of the park. I got to keep them awake. I got to have something really awesome. And so we try to concoct creative interpretations sometimes that's really not apparent in the text. And what's most dangerous is that we, we must spiritualize away the reality. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example, real example, of something that has been said before. Go with me to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. All right. And anyone off the top of their heads know what Leviticus 11 is about? I think I heard it. Clean and unclean meats? You are correct. Let's take a look at verse 2. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Pretty clear so far, right? Verse 3, Whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. So if we were to take the most obvious reading, take the scriptures as they read, what type of animals are clean to eat, according to verse 3? What are the characteristics? Chew the cud? Split hoof. Pretty clear, right? Well, there was once a time, an individual, I don't remember his name exactly, this is a long time ago, he said, you amateurs, the Bible actually has a deeper meaning. Do you realize that the clean animals were actually sacrificial animals? And in Romans, it actually says that ye ought to present yourselves a living sacrifice. So Leviticus chapter 11 is actually not talking about clean and unclean meats at all. It's talking about what it means to be a living sacrifice for Jesus. A living sacrifice? Choose the cud. And what is the bread that we are to meditate on every day? We need to study the Bible every day. That's chewing the cud. And dividing the hoof, these animals are sure-footed. They're beasts of burden. So that means these people are firmly grounded on the rock. Jesus Christ. Sounds pretty amazing, huh? I mean, it sounds right. Is there anything, quote-unquote, wrong with believing that Christians ought to study the Bible and be firmly grounded on the rock? Is there anything, quote-unquote, wrong with that? But is that what the verse is saying? No. How do you know that? 
How do, how do you know that that is an incorrect, a wrong, wrongly dividing the word of truth? How can you say, if someone sat down and you're having a Bible study with them on Leviticus 11 and they say, that's not talking about clean and unclean meats. What is, the, what is our reason why that is an incorrect interpretation? There's context, yes, but more specifically, we're just taking the Bible as it reads. Just read the words. What does it say? Don't overstrain it. And just because we have the truth, okay? Just because we have, quote-unquote, the truth, it does not mean that every truth is found in every text. We need to be careful that we do not fall into the trap of looking for zebras whenever we hear hoofbeats. Here's another example. You remember the pool of Bethesda, the individual who was you know, born lame, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. You know, this is talking about medical missionary work. It's talking about the health message. It's talking about overcoming sin. It's talking about the Sabbath. So you know what Bethesda's about? Be the SDA. It's right there in the Bible. But is that a correct interpretation of the word? No. Do we have messages within there that is applicable and appropriate? Yes. But don't overstrain the meaning of the sentences in the Bible, even if your conclusions are correct. Just because your end is correct, it doesn't mean that you can use inappropriate means to get there. The ends don't justify the means, in other words. The hoofbeat principle. When you hear hoofbeats, don't start looking for zebras. Look for what's the most obvious and plain reading of the word. Amen? Is that clear? I hope that's clear. All right, continuing. Point number seven. The emotions principle. Oh, boy. This one is a biggie. Genuine faith is founded on the scriptures, but Satan uses so many devices to rest the scriptures and bring in error that great care is needed if one would know what they really do teach. It is one of the great delusions of this time. Notice that. One of the great delusions of this time. To dwell much upon feeling and to claim honesty while ignoring the plain utterances of the word because the word does not coincide with feeling. This one cuts very close to home. Many have no foundation for, for their faith but emotion. The religion, the religion consists in excitement. When that ceases, their faith is gone. Feeling may be chaff, but the word of God is the wheat. And what, says the prophet, is the chaff to the wheat? Review and Herald, November 25, 1884, paragraph 26. Oops, I thought there was another paragraph. All right, let me just mention this real quick. I don't think I need to say a whole lot because I, I think it's very clear. And that is that emotions, we're human, so we have emotions. But the danger, and let me back up, the study of the Bible and the truth and emotions, they should be related. When we read the Bible, it should generate some emotion. When we discover a beautiful truth about our loving Lord and Savior, it should cause feelings of love and loyalty and appreciation. Amen? And if it finds something in our lives that we are doing wrong and we have feelings of guilt and remorse, that's also a good thing because it leads us to repentance. So the truth and emotion, we don't want to say you shouldn't have any emotion. That's not the point. 
But the point is getting the horse and the car, the car before the horse. And that is, this doesn't make me feel good, therefore it must not be right. Or I don't get excited when I hear this certain Bible study, so therefore it must not be true. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? The truth should result, should cause us to have certain emotions. But our emotions are not to be the judge of whether something is true. And this is something very important, particularly in this day and age, and that is everything is driven by emotion. This YouTube video makes me laugh, so I'm going to watch it ten more times. But the Bible study is boring, so I'm not going to even listen to it all the way through. That preacher is so good. What did he teach? I don't know, but he was really good. You understand what I'm saying? There is a superstar mentality even within the church. Celebrity mentality. That speaker is so dynamic. I just love listening to him. What does he teach? I don't know, but whatever he teaches, I believe it. I believe it. Problem. Our emotions should not be the gauge by which we determine what we believe. It's got to be based on the truth. Many have no foundation for their faith but emotion. And the next point, this is so good, I actually have to add something, another point. That is point number eight. True is better than new principle. This passage actually ties into what we were just talking about. Great Controversy, page 463. It says, popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. This is a danger for those of us who preach, who teach, who present, is to come up with something new. we got to have something flashier, something more engaging, something more amazing. We're not making a movie here, guys. I mean, it's preaching the word. Just preach the word. Converts thus gained have little desire to listen to Bible truth. If we are winning people to the truth with, with shows and concerts and games and prizes, why would they listen to the Bible? Little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attraction for them. A message which appeals to unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word related directly to the eternal interest are unheeded. Oh, Jesus is coming soon? Hmm. It's not as exciting as the new Avengers movie. Here's the problem. We have, I think, for even myself, I catch myself in this same predicament, and that is emotions have such a a grasp on us, on me. And so on one hand, we want to entertain, we want to, you know, have gimmicks, we want to make people feel good, and then on the other hand, we feel like we got to shock people, right? Defibrillate them. Jesus is coming soon. There are Jesuits in the church. I'm serious. But the point is that conspiracy theories and sensationalism, right? People who follow false prophets and trying to make every headline in the news some major new prophecy in the Bible. 
All of this kind of stuff stirs up within us this exact thing, appeals to imagination by exciting the emotions and gratifying the love of what is new and startling. So in the name of being faithful, Bible-believing prophecy scholars, we're falling right into the great delusion that we read about earlier, and that is making emotion the bedrock of our religion instead of the plain writings of God's Word. So, when we study the Bible, when we study the Bible, the point is not to find what's new, but is to find what's true. So when we come to the Bible and when we pray to the Lord today, I'm opening the Bible, Lord, teach me what is true. That's the prayer. The prayer ought not primarily to be show me something new. Because when we are searching for the truth, automatically God will reveal new truths to us. But if we're looking for what's new, we might be like, oh, that's true, but that's not exciting enough. In fact, I was on an evangelistic series in Sacramento, California a number of years ago, and I was, I was actually one of the speakers, and I was out there shaking hands with people, and a gentleman came up to me and said, you know, Adventism, you know, I think God has a better way. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, do you know that we haven't had any new light since 1844? I said, new light? What do you mean by that, new light? He said, we haven't had any new prophets. We haven't had any new time prophecies since 1844. He said, Adventism must be a lie. There must be another movement to come that's going to give us another prophet and, and another time prophecy because it's been over 100 years and God has left this church. Well, that gentleman was later on escorted out of our meetings. But it's this kind of thinking that leads people down into the road to fanaticism. And on the other hand, the love of excitement dulls the appetite for reading the Word of God, which actually happens to be quite exciting, if you have the spiritual antennas up and tuned. Okay, point nine. We need to hurry here. Big picture principle. Big picture principle. This one, I think, speaks for itself. Education, page 190, paragraph 2. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. We're going to come back to this point tomorrow morning. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. So what is this saying? saying that the entire Bible can be understood within a certain framework. There is an overarching framework through which we can interpret Scripture. And Elmai calls it the grand central theme of the Bible, the original purpose of God for the world, God's original intent, the rise of the great controversy, and the work of redemption. If we can summarize all of this, it's just the great controversy framework, or the meta-narrative is another big word, and that is, that's the story behind the story. It is this, the canvas upon which all of our individual life stories and all the stories of the Bible fit within. It's a framework, and it makes sense when you look at it in the big picture. Another passage, Review and Herald, October 14, 1890, paragraph 2. The life and character of Christ were living epistles of the truths he taught, and by his example he inspired faith in his followers. He was the subject of all the lessons he gave his disciples, the theme to which their attention must be riveted. Again, that word, the theme. 
He was the great center of all, and faith in him was to bring eternal life to all who would believe in him. The types and rites of the Jewish church were all connected with himself. He was the glory of the whole system. Everything that was attractive, either in nature or revelation, was found in him. He was the all-absorbing theme of patriarchs and prophets, the first and the last Alpha and the Omega of all things. So Christ is the great center of all the truths. It all emanates from him. And when we study the Bible, we need to look through the framework. There's a great controversy, the big frame, and then Jesus is the hub. And everything's got to connect. And if it doesn't make sense within the framework, then something's out of place. And it's a we don't have time to deal with this today, but I actually, I believe I've, I've given a study with this before, and that is the importance of the whole great controversy. It makes sense of everything. The Sabbath, state of the dead, hellfire, the law, all of these things have a connection, and they flow together, and it makes perfect sense. And when we study the Bible, we ought to see that connection and to look for it. All right, we gotta, we got to move on here, even though we could talk all night about that. Point number 10, the no pain, no gain principle. The study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and persevering thought. As the miner digs for the golden treasure in the earth, so earnestly, persistently, we must seek for the treasure of God's word. Education, page 189, paragraph 3. It is proper and right to read the Bible, but your duty does not end there. For you are to search its pages for yourself. The knowledge of God is not to be gained without mental effort without prayer for wisdom, in order that you may separate from the pure grain of truth the chaff with which men and Satan have misrepresented the doctrines of truth. What am I trying to say here? No pain, no gain. And that is simply this. It's true, God is trying to reveal himself. But it doesn't mean it's not going to take some effort on our part. And it's not, the, it's not that God is trying to make it difficult. It's just that because we are so degenerated, Our minds are so dull. In order for us to actually learn the truth, we have to exert some effort. And when we do it, God's promises are right there. Ye shall find me when ye seek for me with all your heart. I want to read one passage to you. Psalm 126. Psalm 126. We are winding down here. Psalm 126, paragraph, uh, sorry, not paragraph, verse 6. Psalm 126, verse 6. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing what? Precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. When the sower went forth to sow, in the parable of the sower and the seed, what did the seed represent? The word of God. And in this psalm, we're Said, it tells us that he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, meaning sowing precious seed, will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Which means, when you go to sow your seed, you are guaranteed to have a harvest. But not just any seed. Precious seed. What makes seed precious? We actually, my wife and I, we... We are wannabe gardeners. We have a garden, and we want to eat food from our garden, so we're wannabe gardeners. But we actually had some success last year, and we grew a number of things. One of the things that we grew uh, were what's called scarlet runner beans. 
I could have told, you know, it could have been a number of other things that we grew, but the scarlet runner bean is probably the most striking. Because you plant the seed. We bought the seed from Amazon, and the seeds are like giant pinto beans. Like huge beans. They're like this big. And they're pink with like speckles on them. Really nice. Big. We planted them, and they shot up. They grew. And when we planted the seed, we bought them from Amazon. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Whatever. Seed. All right, we plant them. At the end of the season, the paws were drying on the vine, and we brought them in, and we were saving seed for the next year. Unfortunately, they actually didn't taste very good, so we're not growing them this year. But we still saved the seed. And we took the pods down, and we opened the pods, and both of us were like, whoa, these seeds are amazing. They're like this big, and they're pink, and they're speckled. And then we went to the refrigerator, we pulled out our other packet of seeds, and we realized they look exactly the same. But something changed between the seed, something changed in our minds, right? In the seed that was planted to the seed that was harvested. What was the difference? This word right here. We grew that seed. We cultivated the ground we watered it, we weeded it, it took effort, it took our time, it took patience, and even though the seed was exactly the same in the end, now it's precious seed. When you go to sow your seed, yes, doubtless you will come rejoicing, bearing your sheaves, but the seed that you bring better be precious seed. See that you yourself took the effort to grow. The word that you yourself assimilated and chewed on and understood and studied because it takes our most diligent thought and persevering, or diligent effort and persevering thought. But there is one more thing. And I'm going to leave you with this last thought. That is, we're trying to be practical this weekend about how to study the Bible. And this is the absolute most practical rule, principle, whatever you want to call it. I learned it actually last year. (laughs) I didn't learn it, but the idea came to me last year when we were, I was at an army Bible camp. I was actually presenting this seminar there, and I was listening to one of the other presenters. And this is what he said. You want to study the Bible? You want the single most important thing to do? Just read the word. You know, after we talk about all these principles, I think it's important for us to keep them in mind. But there's just no substitute for sitting down, opening it up, and just read it. You want to understand what it means when God says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son? Why don't you go read John chapter 3? You don't understand the three angels' messages? Well, open up to Revelation 14. And read it. I don't understand the prophecy of Daniel chapters 7, 8, and 9. Just read it. Oh, I don't really get what about the laws and Leviticus and Numbers. Just read it. It's not rocket science. God has given to us his word. It's written in the language of men. Imperfect and finite as it might be. It was calculated to reach men where they are. 
Read the word. That's where we need to start. That brings us to the end of our meeting tonight. I invite you to join us again tomorrow morning, bright and early, 9.30, as we get into some more practical matters. Two sets of three things tomorrow that we're going to learn about how to study the Bible. So let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for the principles that you have given to us from your inspired writings and from the Bible. Lord, I pray that we might have the foundation that we might approach your word with humility of mind, with a willingness of spirit, for the eagerness to learn from, from you. Lord, we recognize that we are insufficient for these things. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us, not only to give us wisdom, but to inspire us and to motivate us to spend time in these pages of the sacred word. And be with us tonight in this Sabbath. Give us rest and bring us safely Uh, safely together again tomorrow morning as we continue this seminar. And we commit all of these things to you today in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.